Breen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week around the country, communities are celebrating Dias de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. The festivals have grown in popularity as a new generation is discovering the indigenous roots. And along the way, some are raising concerns about cultural appropriation. Generally, the argument among Latinos who celebrate Day of the Dead is that, like, ah, oh, Day of the Dead is becoming appropriate, is becoming too commercial, etc., etc. That's Dr. Matthew Sandoval. He's researching the transborder holiday, examining the ways that Dias de los Muertos developed from an ancient Mesoamerican ritual into an American pop culture mainstay. Sandoval himself, a Chicano, cautions that before claiming appropriation of culture, we really need to take a closer look at the history. There's never been a time when Day of the Dead was celebrated, even in the indigenous past, where the holiday wasn't deeply and intimately tied to commercialization, either woven into it or commercialization right alongside it. That's part of how it's become popular. That's part of how it's uh, been able to survive from generation to generation. He argues the festival's relationship to the marketplace is actually secondary to its role as a healing and spiritual ritual, one with deep meaning. And that may surprise some of us who may think of the festival as a parade of ghostly faces with folks dressed as zombies and skeletons intended to scare. Now, we'll get back to Sandoval a little later in the program to dive into his research and to the meaning of Dias de los Muertos. But first, what's the deal with horror and religion? Because from where I sit, faith seems to be a recurring character. Horror as a cultural form has an amazingly rich symbolic vocabulary. Different themes, styles, objects, tropes, and motifs are all used to create particular effects. The most important one being fear. So much of this symbolic vocabulary is drawn from religion and theology. Devils, demons, and crucifixes are hugely familiar to anyone who enjoys horror. But more widely, we can see that horror is fascinated by ideas which are religious and spiritual. Ghosts, hauntings, even possessions are based on religious and spiritual ideas about ourselves and the nature of our existence. Horror in all of its forms isn't just about the threat of physical suffering but is about the threat to the soul. And what this raises is an important question. Is horror just a series of scary stories? Or is there something deeper going on that those of us who study religion and theology should be paying attention to? That was Dr. Jonathan Greenaway, a scholar who studies theology and horror, in an appropriately scary video describing his research. While virtually every culture has some form of ghost story, nowhere is the horror genre more firmly rooted than in Western pop culture. 
From blockbuster movies like A Quiet Place to acclaimed television dramas like American Horror Story and best-selling books by Stephen King, well, everywhere you look, you can see Americans have a love affair with fright. 2020 was the single best year for the horror film industry, and that's in terms of box office receipts according to Nash Information Services. And at the same time, horror has also become more highbrow, with films like Get Out and The Shape of Water, and television shows like The Walking Dead and Lovecraft Country frequently winning big at the award shows. When it comes to religion, horror has its own love affair, often bringing evil nuns, demonic priests, and other symbols of faith into stories of possession, hauntings, and visitations from another realm. While most people who enjoy horror find it little more than titillating entertainment, some horror fans find being scared out of their wits somehow, some way, deepens their understanding of their religious and spiritual beliefs. With Halloween in the Air, producer Kimberly Winston talked with Dr. Jonathan Greenaway to find out why. My name is Dr. Jonathan Greenaway. I am currently a researcher in theology and horror at the University of Chester, and I am coming to you from a very grey and very cold Manchester in the north of England. I'm the principal investigator on a project called Gothic Heresy, which is a two-year Templeton Religious Trust-funded research project into how people who engage with horror understand it on a religious or theological level. Let me ask you to define gothic horror. It is a tradition of culture that emerges in Europe in the late 18th century, reaches a high point in the 19th century with some of the most famous, now considered classics of of the literary canon, things like Frankenstein or Dracula, and persists in the massive explosion of horror cinema and other media that we've seen in the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, this is a cultural form which draws on a lot of religious iconography, theme, symbol, and motif. Things like crucifixes, deserted churches, uh, nuns, monks, demons, ghosts, devils, and all, all that kind of thing. All that good stuff that we love. All the good stuff. The aim of the project is to establish whether people who enjoy this and engage with it understand those elements to be something other than just kind of aesthetics. You know, is is horror just a series of scary stories or is it speaking to and communicating to those who engage with it on a deeper level? Our initial results from the survey are very encouraging and show that around 40% of people who engage with horror have found it to be something which encourages them to think more about religious or spiritual matters. A very large minority of survey respondents said that in some way, horror, particularly supernatural horror, does reflect their understanding of um, a kind of spiritual or religious reality, even if in some way it exaggerates or brings certain aspects of that uh, to the fore. And virtually none of the people who have responded have said that horror has, has nothing to do with religious or spiritual things. Virtually none of the respondents have said oh, it's just, it's just scary stories. There may be disagreement about exactly what that visual and symbological language means, but it is clear from our survey results that 
a pretty large minority of people who engage with it do understand it to have some religious or spiritual significance for them. Is your research leading you to believe that for at least some people, people who watch horror, read horror, in any way consume horror, that it in some way helps them deepen their spirituality or their connection to whatever their faith may be? Um, Yes, that certainly seems to be the case for quite a lot of the people who have responded. Some people may see it as disposable, as just straightforward entertainment. Very few people seem to see it as completely disconnected from the spiritual realm. But for those who have a very clear sense of religious uh, or kind of spiritual self-understanding, horror does seem to reinforce and deepen that. Is there anything that your research tells you how that breaks down along faith lines? Is it mostly people who are Christian or Catholic or anything that you can pull out from that at this point? Um, On the one hand, we have people who are interested in things like occult magic, paganism and neo-paganism, their own syncretic and idiosyncratic magical practices. And on the other hand, we have extremely high church Anglican and Catholic respondents. And my supposition is that these are uh, groups of people who are drawn to the uh, to the darker, the gothic, even slightly macabre side of religion. What's interesting is who hasn't responded. So there's been a big gap in particularly American evangelicals responding. Hmm. Um, a kind of a, a big absence. And one of the things I would be really interested to do is do future follow-up research investigating how how horror intersects with that very, very large, very cohesive and very clearly self-identifying religious group. What's been very kind of pleasantly surprising about the survey is the number of people involved in ordained ministry who have responded. Oh, really? Yep. I think, again, there are two things about horror which is so kind of striking and profound for this group of people is its insistence on the kind of non-material existence. You know, this idea that ghosts, demons, devils, are in some way kind of metaphysically present. And two, the way in which horror deals with uh, both evil and suffering. Why do you think so many clergy that responded to your survey seem to be attracted to this genre? Does it have to do with confirming or reinforcing their worldview that there's, you know, a veil of the supernatural that involves God. I mean, you tell me, why Why do you think clergy are so attracted to this? Well, I think if I had to hazard a guess, and I should emphasize, I think that's what I'm doing. Um, there, That is certainly part of it. But also because some of the bigger questions that they have to reckon with are precisely around things like evil. Why do bad things happen? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are there monsters in the world? Why is there suffering? You know, what does it mean to go through dark, horrifying events? And how do you come out of the other side of that? Those are the kind of deep pastoral questions that I think a lot of people in ordained ministry have to deal with in their own congregations or the churches or parishes that they're responsible for. And so I think whenever I've spoken to a clergy about working on horror, all of them are fascinated by it because one, horror is exceptionally popular. Uh, Two, it's exceptionally powerful. It has a very big, what we call an affective impact. It it gets to people. And three, Mm. and this is probably the key one for them, is that horror engages with those kind of really deep-seated 
very foundational questions. I know most, if not all, of the world's cultures have some form of ghost story or some element of the frightful or the horrible in their oral and written traditions. But horror seems to have really taken root and flourished in the Western imagination. Why is that? And does religion play a role in that? I'm not going to speak on all of the world's major religions. I'm not an expert on all of them. But what I am an expert on is the cultural impact of Christianity and how that's explored. And I think one thing that is really uh, very curious, particularly about modern versions of contemporary Christianity, is the way in which there is a desire to expunge the kind of darker side of things. You know, lots of high-profile uh, Christian leaders might love to talk about, you know, blessings and success and the ways in which Christian life can easily be equated with prosperity or virtue. But a lot of Christian tradition and a lot of Christian theology is very uh, drawn to things like the inevitability of suffering, the, the idea of evil as a kind of metaphysical reality that has to be confronted, the idea that uh, you know, the, the main symbol of Christian faith is the crucifix, which is a symbol of death, uh, and specifically a tortured death. I actually think that there is this kind of symbolic impoverishment of Christian religion, which seeks to extract any of the potential negativity, the, the kind of darkness, the, the idea of religion as something wholly positive and wholly sort of benign, reduces it in some way, takes away something of the complexity and mystery that maybe draws people to imaginatively engage with religion in the first place. So what you're saying, if I understand, is that if you strip religion of what we might consider elements of horror, like the crucified body of Christ, the dead body of Christ, yep. that we in some way impoverish religion. That would certainly be my argument. And I know some people might think that that's unnecessarily macabre, but in many ways it, it's the ultimate reckoning that Christian religion has some uh, capacity to speak into a world that suffers is through its own association with suffering, death, with violence. And I think one of the things that's really valuable about horror is that it encourages people to explore their own fears and their own kind of bodily fragility so if you you go and watch a horror film you know let's say you go and watch something like the exorcist you know there mm -hmm. is there is an exploration of bodily fragility of, of contingency of suffering uh but all of that is redeemed through what i think in some ways a very devoutly catholic religious piece of filmmaking mm. and i think it is in many ways a mistake to to shy away from horror we live in a in a world that can often seem uh, very violent. It can often seem very um, unfair. And I think horror is a cultural form which allows people to engage with these issues in ways that can be really provocative and raise some really important religious and spiritual questions. Can you flesh that out for me a little bit more? Why do some people seem to enjoy or need or want to be scared out of their mind? Because I certainly don't want to be scared out of my mind. <laughs> well, I, I think... One way of thinking about it is, um, let's think about it in a very kind of mundane parallel example, roller coasters. Okay. Roller coasters are designed to be scary. They're designed to be this kind of exciting spectacle. A good horror movie operates on similar kind of physiological stimulus, right? It's designed like a good roller coaster is to, to make you jump, make your heart beat faster, make you feel the kind of rush of adrenaline. 
on a kind of deeper level, horror is a space in which we explore some of the very worst things that can happen to a person. But it's done in a way that's safe. There's the distance of the screen. So it, this isn't happening to you, but by observing, by being drawn into the participation of spectatorship, we can kind of wrestle with the possibilities of what, what, how would we respond if we were in, in serious danger? You know, if we were haunted, if we were chased, if we were in danger of death or, or bodily harm, horror is a way of exploring the very worst that can happen. And I think uh, the reason that people might want to do that is, you know, we've all had a phone call that maybe someone that we care about has been hurt. Suddenly the world becomes a kind of different place. You know, things that we thought were important or thoughts and stresses that we were worried about that day fly out of the window and we we become reminded of what it is that we truly value. Mm. And I think in some way there is an element in horror to which that is part of it. Yes, there is spectacle. Some people go and see them because they enjoy them just like you would a roller coaster. But also for, for quite a large proportion of people, there are elements to which horror allows us to wrestle with and confront some very deep human questions of existence. And are they the same questions that religions have long grappled with? Precisely, yeah. Questions of suffering, questions of the existence of the supernatural or, or forces beyond the merely physical, you know, mm. questions of, uh, of good and evil. Horror is notable as one of very few genres, I think, that takes evil quite seriously. Questions of, you know, being saved, what does that mean? And that can be as kind of obvious and on the nose equivalent to religion as something like Reagan's story in The Exorcist, where this little girl is literally saved by the self-sacrificial love of a Catholic priest. Or it can be a little more abstract. You know, what does it mean to be a survivor? If you encounter a monster, how does that change you? And I think even though the aesthetic differences are very stark between religion and horror, those are some of the key questions to religious experience. So what's the next stage of your research? What we're going to be doing is we're going to be sitting down and talking with people. Um, the survey was very widely distributed, um, but it's now time for us to find people who would like to uh, tell us about their own religious understanding and the ways in which horror plays into that for them. It might be people who are Anglican or Catholic. It might be people who have no religious affiliation. It might be people who have their own uh, neo-pagan or magical practices and ask them to uh, just explore collectively how their own engagement with horror is informed by or helps shape their religious sense of things. Secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down with some people who think that horror has had a decisive impact or has changed their religious uh, perspective in some way. And that might be people who were committed to a religious organization or denomination and have now left it. It might be people who have found uh, horror to be very religiously or spiritually meaningful for them, which has brought them into a kind of religious tradition. And we're going to basically uh, have a chance to explore the ways in which horror has been a kind of formative influence for people. That's Dr. Jonathan Greenaway from the University of Chester talking about his two-year study of horror and religion. When we come back, producer Kimberly Winston and Dr. Greenaway discuss his favorite films, television shows, and books, where the scary and the sacred combine. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Breen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining the program, this week religion reporter Kimberly Winston is taking a closer look at how the genre of films that play into our fears about evil can shed light on how we wrestle with beliefs. She is speaking to Dr. Jonathan Greenaway from the University of Chester about his academic work, The Unlikely Intersection of Religion and Horror. Now, before the break, Dr. Greenaway covered the ways the horror genre can explore the very same questions religion grapples with, like why does evil exist and where is the divine when people suffer? As the conversation continues, she asks Dr. Greenaway to recommend some good and not-too-gruesome examples of when horror and religion meet. Let's get back to the interview. John. It's going to be Halloween this week, and it's autumn, and it just feels spooky outside. I've got three owls in my backyard who Mm -hmm. creep me out every night with their hooting. It's just a time of year when I start thinking about more spooky things. So if you were to give me a list of your favorite movies, television shows, books that in some way embody the intersection of religion and spirituality with horror. What are your favorites? What would you recommend? Let's start with a movie. If you're not a great one for horror movies, then I think you really can't go wrong with James Whale's 1931 adaptation of Frankenstein. Oh. There's an incredible scene where Frankenstein himself says, I know what it feels like to be God. I won't say any more. Yes, it might be a little cheesy. It might be a little hokey in places, but it was still absolutely groundbreaking at the time and is in many ways a really deeply moving piece of cinema. But if you're not much of a horror film fan, as I know lots of people aren't, but you would like to maybe start to find your way into this very interesting mode of culture, 
I think starting with a classic is a great way to go. It's a little more manageable. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one. Give me another one. What's, what's your personal favorite movie that deals with these, this intersection? It might be a cliche for people, but there are two which um, people who work in my field will talk about, and we will talk about them endlessly because they're so rewarding, which is uh, 1973's The Wicker Man and the classic William Friedkin film, The Exorcist. Yes, yes. You know my story of The Exorcist, right? My mother took <laughs> me to see it when I was, I think I was the same age as Reagan in the film. And I sat there with my hands over my eyes for the whole film, and my mother just giggled at me. And I'm sure, I'm sure this is why I don't like horror. I mean, it might, it might well be that they're, they're, t- they're two, they're two very different films, but they are two intensely religious, even theological films. Mm. The Exorcist is is honestly just uh, every film fan will always say they have one film they think is a kind of perfect, and I think I think The Exorcist is sort of a perfect film. It is. Uh, it is very scary. It's constantly surprising. It's a very Catholic film. The Wicker Man, which strangely comes out in the same year, is in some ways a lot stranger. Um, it's very interested in the resurgence of paganism in, in Britain. It has a devoutly Calvinist Scottish police officer who finds himself in a very strange new world that they're not at all comfortable in. And, of course, has a, a truly iconic performance uh, by Christopher Lee in that film. Parthenogenesis. What? <laughs> Literally, reproduction without sexual union. Oh, what is all this? I mean, you, you, you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never heard of Jesus? Himself the son of a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. Do I remember this movie also maybe from when I was a kid? They actually construct a wicker man and put people in it and burn it. Yes, that is correct. Uh, It has an incredible soundtrack as well. It has a great score. It is one of the founding films of what now gets referred to as folk horror. You talked about The Exorcist. You mentioned the soundtrack, and you said that that is a perfect film. It is a fabulous film, as much as I could never watch it again. That soundtrack... I remember feeling that it was shot in a way that was very claustrophobic. It was very tight in that room and intimate between the priest and the devil inside the little girl. Yes, it's it's desperately cramped. The scenes which are filmed inside Reagan's bedroom, you'll see the priest talking and you can see their breath in the air. And it's because it was so cold because of what the director had chosen to do. Now, the way the director behaved on set I, I absolutely can't condone because to make it feel so real, Friedkin essentially tortured his actors. Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, nearly ended up with a broken spine uh, from the harness. But all of it adds up to give it this sense of truthfulness. It is he who commands you. He who flung you from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. Begone in the name of the Father and of the Son. The Holy Spirit. The thing that people remember about The Exorcist is that it feels very real. Mm. It, it doesn't ever lapse into something fantastic, something kind of safe. You know, everything about it feels very real. It's a film that still is in, intensely powerful. 
I'm surprised you didn't mention Rosemary's Baby. Um, if I had to pick another one from that era, I would have picked Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. There is one modern film that I would like to talk about as well, but Rosemary's Baby is is extremely interesting, uh, if only for one shot in the film, which is a cover of Time magazine gets picked up. And it's the famous cover of Time magazine that asks the question, is God dead? I remember that now. Yes, yes. And of course, this was Time writing a story about the uh, emergence of what's called death of God theology right. in uh, American Christianity. But it's such a, an interesting detail to be included in film, which is, well, if God is dead, Satan certainly isn't. And Satan is busy bringing forth children. That's movies. Tell me about TV. You tell me what you would recommend our listeners watch as a good example of this intersection of religion and horror, spirituality and horror on television. Well, happily for me, perhaps a perfect example has just been released, which is Mike Flanagan's uh, Netflix series, Midnight Mass. It's intensely interesting. So Flanagan is a horror writer and director and is always also very clearly very interested in religion, was raised Catholic, raised in an, an environment quite happily. You know, the church was a place that was very interesting, a place to ask questions. This is a show about a very, very insular, uh, very pious community that is mourning the sudden disappearance of the parish priest when a newcomer arrives to the island. It's fabulously acted. It has an excellent sense of pace. Behold. Lo, lo and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. faith brothers and sisters i would not make you see what you have seen i would not ask you to choose what you may choose without first showing you god's messenger and an angel of the lord appeared to them on the right side of the altar of incense and when zachariah saw him he was terrified and overcome with fear there are some really interesting, explicit conversations about faith, about inter-religious dialogue, about the role of religion in public life, about dealing with grief and guilt and addiction, and dealing with as much as horror often does this. Horror, horror. everyone thinks that horror is really about being afraid, but horror in many ways is about dealing with grief. Hmm. Ghosts are not necessarily monsters. Ghosts can be memories, right? So horror is is very much about exploring the melancholy as well as the terrifying. And I think this is maybe another reason why people don't like it, um, because it brings us back to the things that are our own kind of personal psychological griefs and traumas. Okay, what about my favorite, Penny Dreadful? Oh, what a fun show. What a fun show. <laughs> Penny Dreadful. Tell me about my favorite show. What's really fun about Penny Dreadful is that it was um, really at the boom of what we call neo-Victorianism, which is where we have, as I said, instead of trying to create new monsters, we go back to the, the heyday of the 19th century, where Penny Dreadfuls were cheap, easily produced, mass market fiction, uh, usually quite lurid, full of, full of blood and guts and violence and all other kinds of illicit things that you really weren't supposed to be reading. But again, enormously popular. And so uh, Penny Dreadful, the show, is basically a restaging of some of the kind of classic monsters and horrifying elements of 19th century literature in a very slick kind of package really really interesting vampires in penny dreadful 
I think that's probably the bit that's the most interesting to me. I loved the women characters in mm. Penny Dreadful. I thought they did just a, an amazing job of exploring what it was like to be a woman at that time, the horror of being a woman at, at that time. I loved that show. And then my new favorite, The Walking Dead. Now, The Walking Dead's a really interesting show. The zombie, as a figure, is probably the definitive monster of the modern age. Now, that's a religious figure as well. It emerges out of Caribbean religious practices and Vudan, which was then written about in the early 1900s and brought back uh, to Europe. One of the earliest zombie films is a Bela Lugosi film called White Zombie, which is about a sugar plantation that is using zombies as a cheap, inexhaustible source of labor. Oh, my God. There is this, there's a kind of political element to the zombie as well, but we shouldn't elide the fact that it has its roots in Caribbean religious uh, magic and folk practices. So The Walking Dead is interesting mostly because it's a show that strikes me as quite nihilistic. The famous line is, you know, who are the Walking Dead? Are we talking about the hordes of, of zombies? No, we're talking about the people who have survived. So really, it's nihilism is not a rejection of meaning. Nihilism is the wrestling with the collapse of meaning. So in a world without hope, what do you do? How do you go on? It is about this kind of challenge of what does it mean to be human, right? If you strip away all the kind of metaphysical niceties, what are we? What are we left with? What is the ground for hope? We face dire challenge and chance. Our lives. Our way of life. It hangs in the balance. We will fight. And we will bleed. Yet I smile, for we will mine glory from the rock of struggle this day. We will honor and protect this this bastion of life in the land of the dead. And we will win. You trust the king, we will win. It's quite a challenging show if you you choose to engage with it on those terms. Because for all of its problems, it does take seriously the idea that we are not just physical things, right? There is something within us that wants us to keep going, even though we might know, we might rationally know that there's no hope. Uh, mm. we, you know, we are the walking dead. What does that mean? What does it mean to to sort of become something other than, you know, what we might think of as being human? Mm-hmm. You recommended to me a book called The Loney, and I forget who that is by. That is the debut novel by British writer called Andrew Michael Hurley. It's a book that is about the, a crisis of faith, as a lot of horror writing, and a lot of horror generally tends to be. What if you went looking for a miracle and you actually found one, is the crux of the story. But it's a miracle that didn't come from a power that you knew, but came from a source that seems a bit darker and a little more terrifying. All right, that's the Loney. Any other books that you would recommend... I think that you can't go wrong by reading some 19th century Gothic writing. If you've never read it, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is without peer. It is, yeah. um, it is scary. It is beautiful. The, the monster that is terrifying, not because it isn't like you, but because it is a creature that can speak rationally and eloquently as well as terrify if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, the other thing that I would I would definitely recommend is Bram Stoker's Dracula. A deeply weird novel, probably nothing like you remember, but it is very ambitious, very strange in places, 
and uh, its presentation of the vampire is is not the original presentation of vampires. Vampires were a part of 19th century literature for a long time before then. But it is the definitive one. It is the one that we have been drawing from and reworking and reimagining for for over a century. Dr. Jonathan Greenaway is a researcher in theology and horror at the University of Chester in Manchester, England. Visit interfaithradio.org to find Dr. Greenaway's reading recommendations, along with a link to Horror as Religious Experience. That's a video on YouTube where you can learn more about his work. Coming up, an indigenous syncretic festival takes on a new meaning in the wake of a pandemic. It gave Indigenous peoples a sense of healing. It also gave them some sense of closure, some understanding, and also an ability to know that they had an annual ritual that they could return to so that their dead were never fully forgotten. Ethnographer and third-generation Chicano Matthew Sandoval describes how the annual Dia de los Muertos festival centers Indigenous ceremonies that heal and bring community together. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week marks an important ritual for healing and remembering loved ones, with roots in Mesoamerican culture that extend far beyond Mexico. Días de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. This year on Historical Vera Street in Los Angeles, California, the nine-day festival began on October 25th and concludes on November 2nd, All Saints Day. Each night before the procession, there is a little theatrical performance called um, La Danza de la Muerte, The Dance of the Dead. That's Valerie Hanley. She's on the board of the Alvera Streets Merchant Foundation. She's also one of the lead organizers for this year's Day of the Dead Street Festival. On the weekend before the second, we typically have entertainment throughout the day. So we may have uh, Aztec dancers, uh, ballet folklorico come out, mariachis other musicians. In addition to performances, the festival will have a public altar or ofrenda. A community altar, which they open up to anybody to come and either bring a picture or sometimes what they'll do is they'll put poster board and people can write uh, something about their loved one. Hanley keeps an altar for her family in their store. She explains that what you find in the altar reflects the varied traditions. The original tradition came from the Aztec religion. But then, uh, of course, the Spanish came, of course, with Catholicism. So all of that got mixed in. So nowadays, it's a blending of the two. So even in the altars, you will see a blending of both worlds. So you'll have the picture of a saint or a statue of a saint on the altar, along with the pictures of the loved ones. But you'll also see some of the basic things so you'll have fire in the form of candles. You'll have water in a little bowl, maybe, or glass. You'll have papel picado, which catches the air. 
you may have salt or some kind of food representing the earth. So you'll have a lot of those basic elements that come into play as well. A lot of people put the little sugar skulls or calacas, which are little skeleton figures, also on the altar. So it really is a blending of all that. And depending what part of Mexico you are from, you'll see different types of altars. The Hanley family business began nearly 57 years ago, and they traced their history back to the 1930s, when Alvera Street was the focus of a revitalization effort spearheaded by a wealthy socialite from Northern California, Miss Christina Sterling. Sterling's vision was to see Alvera Street turn into a historic center for Mexican art, culture, and street life. My father actually started here in 1930 when Miss Christine Sterling opened the street. He was one of her shoeshine boys, number 10. And, you know, my parents met here. My mother worked here with my father. We've owned our business here for 57 years. Um, I'm a third generation merchant because my grandmother also had a business here. But I'm a third generation. We have families that have four and five generations here. So, you know, it's really um, an important continuity of family that happens here on Alvera Street. And we see people that come here generation after generation for our events, be it muertos, be it posadas, be it blessing of the animals. So it's really nice to see. For 35 years, the merchants on Alvera Street have organized the street festival. And Hanley says, looking back, she sees a growth in popularity and interest in a ritual that honors those we've lost. We get a lot of people from a lot of different areas of Los Angeles. Um, the event has grown because of the, the celebration factor of this, because we miss the people who have gone. So to celebrate their life is really a good thing, and it makes people happy in a way to remember their loved ones. After a year and a half of a pandemic, the holiday this year takes on an important healing role, not just in Los Angeles, but around the world. All over um, Mexico, parts of Central America, and of course the U.S. Southwest, but also, you know, the United States more generally anymore. Um, Mexican, Chicano, Latin American people will be gathering on November 1st and 2nd to celebrate Day of the Dead. And in many places, they'll be gathering in public, which is quite beautiful. That's Dr. Matthew Sandoval. He's researching the transborder holiday. COVID has obviously shifted our way of life, but it's had a profound impact on our way of death as well. Our death ways have been interrupted precisely because of this. And Dia de los Muertos is, of course, it has two components. There's a familial and kind of home gathering component. You make an altar in the home to honor the dead. But the second component, that there's always a public facing. It's always meant to be uh, celebrated as a community to honor the communal dead more generally. And given that we're going through a period of mass death across the globe, but also in the United States. Um, until this year, we we haven't had the ability to gather as a community. In other words, last year, it was all virtual events, or there were no events. But at least we're starting to kind of thaw out a little bit so that there are some more public and community celebrations, which is necessary. That Because we, we have to honor our dead as a collective. That's, that's part of the, that is part of the tradition of the de los muertos is that it's not a private observation. It's always meant to be shared where you, you share the burden of grief and the, and you share the beauty of joy with regards to this celebration. As part of his research, 
Sandoval travels around the world attending festivals, interviewing leaders like Hanley and connecting to the deep history of the holiday. One, he says, is still misunderstood, noting that it wasn't long ago when it was simply thought of as Mexican Halloween. It's so funny that um, this uh, vernacular of uh, Mexican Halloween really does have an age kind of built into it. There's not a whole lot of scholarship on this, but my guess is that that was as close as they could approximate what they were seeing. The kind of, I would say, gothic imagery with regards to skulls and skeletons immediately probably made Americans think that this was uh, living in relation to Halloween, which, of course, is, is not the case. It's only within the last like decade or decade and a half, maybe, where I think the common understanding in among most Americans who have ever even seen Dia de los Muertos, they understand that it is not Mexican Halloween, but that doesn't mean that they have any clearer idea on what this holiday actually is. It is what we call a syncretic holiday, meaning that it's a blending of two different cultural traditions together. Uh, syncre- syncretic religions tend to be a product of like European colonization in the Americas, but European colonization all over uh, the globe. Today, Dia de los Muertos has gone mainstream. And Sandoval points to pop culture. I have seen, as an ethnographer, is that a younger generation is coming to Dia de los Muertos precisely because of movies like Disney's Coco or other representations because Disney has done um, Dia de los Muertos in a number of their different animated series. So they have grown up with Day of the Dead represented in pop media, which is to say that they've associated with not just their ethnic identity, but they've associated it with something that's valuable, something that's quote-unquote cool. Sandoval describes another trend among the young, those drawn to the indigenous spiritual origins. I would say like late teens and early college kids, which of course I deal with because I'm a university professor. So in what I see at that level in age, especially among uh, self-identified Mexicans, Latinos, uh, Chicanos, etc., is that they are embracing Dia de los Muertos precisely as an indigenous tradition as opposed to a Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. So they're well aware of the roots of colonization and how that has affected this day. So when they celebrate it, they're looking to celebrate the indigenous aspects of it. And among this group are growing concerns about the commercialization and cultural appropriation of the holiday. There's never been a time when Day of the Dead was celebrated, even in the indigenous past, where the holiday wasn't deeply and intimately tied to market forces, wasn't tied to commercialization, profiteering, etc. Day of the Dead has always had to operate with commercialization either woven into it or commercialization right alongside it. That's part of how it's become popular. That's part of how it's uh, been able to survive from generation to generation. I would say in the last uh, five years, at least, uh, cultural appropriation has been a dominant conversation, especially among Latinos uh, and especially among indigenous people. In other words, people love the sugar skulls, so they'll buy a sugar skull, you know, hoodie or they'll 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 dress in the face paint, but they have no idea what that means. Obviously, it's upsetting. So on one hand, it's a matter of balancing cultural appropriation. On the other hand, it's a matter of knowing that this is uh, medicine that can help people heal in a very real way. They can come to terms with the death of a loved one, which we want to invite other people into. 
That's the tricky balance, because now at a lot of Day of the Dead celebrations, especially in California and the U.S. Southwest, but also in Mexico, um, more than half of the people in the crowd are non-Latinos, non-Mexicans, non-Indigenous. Uh, they can be uh, other other races, other ethnicities, which is to say there's more people coming to Day of the Dead. Um but that's not necessarily a bad thing, precisely because Day of the Dead, as a spiritual tradition, it really does have efficacy. For Sandoval, it's not theoretical. The healing power of the ritual was transformative in his own life. Two real moments uh, that hit for me that made me really want to dedicate my life to this holiday. The first is that my first encounter with Dia de los Muertos was not in Mexico, actually. It was in Antigua, Guatemala. Uh, and so that threw me off because what I had known and, and uh, taken to be true about Day of the Dead was that it was a Mexican thing, meaning just in Mexico. But what I learned in my time in Guatemala is that like Guatemalans celebrate this too. And so that made me ask harder questions about like, where does this actually come from? from? Why is it considered Mexican? Like, how has this survived? It, it made me ask really scholarly questions. On the other hand, uh, Day of the Dead, because it's a cultural practice that I've celebrated my entire adult life, it's also truly allowed me to heal from some of the, the most disruptive deaths that I've ever experienced in my life, which is to say I lost my father at a very young age, and I spent my, basically my entire teens and 20s <laughs> butting my head against a wall trying to understand how to deal with that passing and deal with that grief. Dia de los Muertos, throwing myself into this culture, which is to say my culture, allowed me to learn how to heal from that thing that uh, that needed to be healed. So Day of the Dead is not just a scholarly thing for me. It really has been the thing that's allowed me to come to terms with the death that was very disruptive in my life. And if it wasn't for Dia de los Muertos, I'm, 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 this isn't even like figurative. I'm not sure where I would be with my grief. I have a feeling that I would still be deeply, deeply struggling with that loss. But now I can rest assured knowing that every year at this time of year, I'll be able to put a photo of my pops up on my ofrenda, which I make for him annually. And that that is my way of honoring him and allowing that death to pass through me. And I can take this time to honor him on those days, but I don't have to carry the weight of his death on my shoulders every single day. Valerie Hanley is the owner of Casa California in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Matthew Sandoval is an ethnographer and professor at Arizona State University at Phoenix. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's producers are Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. To listen to any portion of this show, explore our archives and get into those show notes, head over to interfaithradio.org. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. We'll see you next week.